Hello everybody and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? This week we have another special guest in, uh, a writer, uh, author, artist and the guiding hand behind Handiworker Games, Mr John Hodgson. How are you doing John? I'm um, very good, thank you for having me on, that's great, yeah. Oh and thank you so much for like listing me as a writer, that never happens. <laughs> everyone everyone always <laughs> refers to me as like artists. When <laughs> I've done some that, fancier that guy did jobs. Some nice pictures. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's it. That is definitely what I'm allowed to be in a lot of people's books. Don't mind, it's all right. It's what I set out to do originally, so, you know, can't complain. But, yeah, it's always nice when uh, someone notices. Yeah, so thanks for having me on. That, that's perfectly fine. We're delighted. Uh, I've got another writer in the room. Baz, how you doing, Baz? <laughs> Don't start. You might call me a podcaster next day. I know I'm in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I'm not calling you an artist just yet. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all good at Aaron, mate. You know, I never get a chance to ask. Gaz, how are you, mate? Are you all right? I'm not bad, actually. I'm okay. You know, we're not going to we're going to avoid talking about the rest of the world. We've done a little bit of that off, off air, and we're going to leave it off air. It's going to stay stay out there. <laughs> this is a nice, friendly gaming environment. So we're going to keep it light. Stuff. Keep it light. Keep it bubbling. That's it. People need a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, isn't it? An oncoming train. So, uh, John, you're famous for, for many things, including drawing pretty pictures, as you said. So I guess I'll ask you about a little bit about that first, since you've, you've mentioned it. But um, I think probably the, the big highlight one that people have noticed most recently has been the One Ring. Did a lot of art for mm-hmm. that. Because it's such a, a strong and vibrant license, you know, it's, it's something that's dear to a lot of people's hearts. And then recently we've also had like the movie franchises and things like that. So there's some visual elements. How did you feel uh, bringing some stuff of Tolkien's world to life, given that a lot of people hold it quite dear and probably have their own imagination about what the world looks like? Yeah, definitely. I, do you know, I nearly turned it down. And we're going back a really long way now. When I first got the phone call offering me the, the work, um, Francesco, who, who wrote The One Ring, had seen my work in uh, Dragon Warriors and he liked that kind of stuff. Um, and then it was actually Angus Abramson that phoned me first, first off to say, you know, do you want to do this thing? People knew they had a big license, Cubicle 7 at the time, and they sort of revealed what it was and swore me to secrecy. And I, I had to say at the time, look, I need a bit of time to think about it because I'm, you know, like so many of us, I'm a li- real lifelong Tolkien nut. And it's that at first you go, yeah, oh, that's amazing, yeah, oh, fantastic. But then you very quickly rise, yeah, and you can stuff it up really badly, you know. <laughs> and so, sort of do, do you do you want to take the risk, or do you want to you know, do you want to move that property you really love into your sort of professional space and and potentially ruin it forever, you know? Um, but yeah, I had a bit of a word with myself and uh, took it on because what can you do? But yeah, I mean, it was absolutely nerve wracking as well because it was all the stuff we did for the One Ring. Um, had to not be um because of the sort of splintering of licensing of of middle earth stuff um it couldn't resemble the movies at all not that anyone particularly working on it wanted it to but but we had to really steer clear to prevent warner brothers being sad and angry in a legal sense um but it did seem at the time it seemed like this vast risk what we were doing because the movies were so well loved and actually i always say this I feel like we got away with it. You know, we did this sort of dark agey, Beowulfy kind of back to its root stuff. And, and I mean, not everyone likes it, but nobody threw bottles of piss at me in the street, which was good. You know, it was always a, always a, a benefit. <laughs> that, that's your level, is it? <laughs> yeah, that's, as long as I clear that bar, I'm all right. <laughs> 
but you don't know that because people really that's okay that's yeah <laughs> well some of these people have got a strong throwing arm you know what i mean <laughs> They've been locked down for a long time. They've got to have a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was it was incredibly daunting, you know. And I think one of the first pieces I painted was Rivendell. And you're like, oh, no pressure then. And it's, it's when you realise in your head <laughs> yeah, it's about so. six different ways. You know, it's not a single set. You know, it's it's all these different impressions. Mm. And, and your imagination is so much more powerful than, than a single image. And so locking that down was quite tough. But, you know... So am I. So there we go. So what's with the uh, what's with the art direction on a project like that particular one, John? Because if you've got to, if you've got guidelines from New Line or whoever it was saying you can't have your doors with octagonal shields, for example, are you your, your own production designer at that point, or or how much how much art direction came your way for the One Ring? Well, it was it was a funny one because initially on the One Ring, it started with a lot of uh, concept art by John Howe, which was incredible and also terrifying. Mm. Then, as we sort of went quite quickly, I didn't officially get the title of art director until was it the first supplement Tales from the Woodland? Because originally, sorry, I'll ramble terribly, so you just like shout at me if I go completely off the rails. We've, we've got bottles ready filled, ready to throw. Yeah, the One Ring was never going to have any supplements originally. It was going to be three core books that advanced the timeline, and that was going to be it. There wasn't going to be no supplements, and there was quite a battle around whether we were doing supplements. But I think I got the title art director on the first supplement, Tales from Wildland. And prior to that, I had been doing a lot of what I would term sort of lead artist work now, where I was really art directing myself. In it, there was just a sort of list of headings to illustrate, and I was, you know, we were, I was working with obviously working with John Howe's work, and there was some sort of tweaking around of that for a sort of the overall cohesion because someone as sort of esteemed as John he it's not he does what he wants but but he does what he wants <laughs> actually in the wrong time I won't try to talk about that yeah you know he, he you ask John to do work you you want John Howe's work you don't give him tons of art direction he's not that kind of artist he's you know, he's he's streets about certainly in live role live role play. God, that's going back. And certainly in, in tabletop role playing games, he he's not someone you tell him what to do. You know, that would be missing the point entirely of getting him on a project. But there was there was a little bit of um, sort of steering the the overall look of it. You know, so it was cohesive across the line and, and suitable for a for a role playing game of the kind of thing you know Francesco was trying to do. So, yeah, and it was then once I was sort of hiring people and sourcing artists, that, that was tough because we had set ourselves quite a task. For example, I think it is in that first, I'm looking to see if I've got one here. I don't. Um, in the first supplement, there's a, this is my favorite one ring story. There's a picture of Bjorn's Hall. Now, there's a mix of things. The names of the sort of uh, woodmen who live nearby there, they're not the actual Bjorns, but the woodmen, the list of names for those people is taken from Frankish sources. And Francesco found a thing. We'd done a lot of work around the etymology of the word Bjorn, which is all about, you know, obviously, uh, Tolkien knows his philology, clearly. And it was all about bear, bee, and warrior. And obviously, warrior and bear, you know, in in the sources of the words across languages across Europe, I'm talking about, sorry. And and bear and warrior are quite, you know, you can see how those have similar sort of, you know, roots as a big, strong, tough person. But bee, bees come into it because of honey eaters, which are bears and warriors. And also that, that in you know, times gone by, honey was used because it's, because it's antiseptic qualities. 
So warriors would either slather mm -hmm. themselves in honey or eat a lot of honey, generally be involved around honey. Anyway, see, this is already fa fantastically long-winded. Francesco found <laughs> on a Frankish king's grave shroud a bee symbol. And, of course, we put that into the artwork, you know, and me and Francesco are the sort of people that really love all that stuff. But it's quite tough to, to recruit freelancers who say, you know, what do you know about Frankish King's shrouds? You know, you really I really like your work on Pathfinder. <laughs> How hot are you on the Merovingian Franks? You know, oh, another another white interview question. Yeah, it is a bit, isn't it? And, and, and I tell you what, it makes it it makes it doubly hard if you want to recruit with an eye to having a few diverse voices, that's really tough because this is <laughs> dusty old boys club stuff, you know, yeah. and Tolkien's bad for that already. So, you know, it's quite a challenge. Yeah. But it was good good fun, though. Liked it. Yeah, I think you did. Um, there's a really good job, I think, generally with the One Ring line that a lot of the art looked, I want to say similar, if that doesn't mm. sound offensive. It's like, but, but it looks no, no, cohesive, it's probably a better word. Yeah. Yeah, it's not that consistent sort of look with something, you know. It was important, I think. Exactly. Yeah, even though you've got several artists working on it, you could get a, a, a through line of how it looked and look and feel, which I thought was really good. So one of the things you touched upon there briefly, which is uh, another sort of uh, well-thought-of set of literature, is uh, Beowulf, mm. which obviously is something that uh, Handiwork Games have uh, produced as a, a two-person D&D game. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that how how it is, yeah. Yeah. How would you expand upon that? I'm sure, I know you're, you're shy of giving extra words, yeah. but if you could <laughs> yeah, put I'll a try, few around. I'm trying not completely monologue. Now you've got me on Beowulf, you're, in, you're really in trouble. That was just a warm-up. <laughs> yeah. No, I'll be, I'll be good. So, the, yeah, Beowulf, we, so I started Handiwork Games, uh, it's about two years ago now, actually, which is terrifying how fast time flies. We didn't sort of officially start and get incorporated and all that good stuff sort of for a little while so it'll be 18 months officially but one of the first things we started pulling together was was Beowulf for, for 5e largely because I've got all this sort of knowledge from doing the one ring stuff you know that, that I wanted to use you know I couldn't do the one ring anymore uh, but I still wanted to draw that kind of stuff and I'd been drawing it and writing about it sort of pre one ring as well so it, I wanted to kind of carry that on and as we were talking about it, there was a little group of us sort of got together, myself, uh, Jacob Rogers, who I'd worked with on Adventures in Middle-Earth, the 5e adaptation. I really love working with Jacob. I think he's a really smart guy. Um, and David Rea, who's uh, one of our proofreaders on Adventures in Middle-Earth, and he has loads and loads of ideas as well. You know, he's another really smart guy. And we just started kicking the ball around on what we were going to do next. And Beowulf is obviously, you know, it was always a touchstone for the Tolkien work so I knew a lot about it and then the idea of it being for one player sort of singular hero and a GM that seemed like oh well, that's an interesting thing to do in the 5e space that I don't think many other people are doing you know um, so yeah that, that's how that came about it just seemed like a smart plan at the time don't know if it was did all right <laughs> did all right on Kickstarter so what's what's what was the approach I'm just trying to think like how how you came about that crystallizing it's just one player and, and making that, you know, what what could you add to the game that then makes it uh, worthwhile just having one hero, if you know what I mean? I, I guess from a, a lot of the sagas and mm. sort of background material, you kind of have like one hero yeah. who's trying to fight against whatever it is that's happening, so that makes sense. But transposing that to D&D, &D, which is, 
you know, typically for decades has been kind of like a party-based mm. game with friends getting together. Like, how how did you sort of like tackle that challenge, or what did it just seem obvious to you that it should be, just be one player? I think it just it came about quite organically, and it's one of those things. I wish I'd written down the day we decided to do it. Why our thoughts about it? Because it, we've been working on it for like two years, so it's really hard to remember the actual moment where that was decided. I bet it'd be in Discord logs, you know, we, we chat in Discord. But it seemed like something, well, kind of like I say, no, nobody else was doing it, and it seemed fairly sort of audacious. Plus, I'm always looking for, I mean, it's sort of basic, excuse the word product, but like product design stuff, where you want to find a problem that people have and, and offer a solution. And, and getting together for a game is really hard. Now, very with a group, right? Because nobody's got any time anymore. I mean, we all we all work much more than we ever have in the past. Certainly, you know, when I was a teenager in the height of my tabletop gaming, yeah, we had nothing yeah, sure. to do. That was why we did it. It's why like Talisman was a brilliant board game because it lasted for like twenty seven hours. It was really good value. You know, that was a that was an asset. Whereas now, I want to play Love it, Letter yeah. in fifteen minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, still got a game going. A giant ape. That's yeah, what you want. It's getting close to the second round now. <laughs> yeah, just, I've been a toad for 46 years. Yeah, <laughs> one space at a time. Anyway, but yeah, it just it seemed like a, a good solution for that, that difficulty of getting a group together. We had no idea that like COVID and so on was coming, but it's really good for um, you know online games. It's really great for that. That was a bit of luck. I mean, you know, so lucky that there's been a global pandemic because it made people realise our game was good. <laughs> what else? Did, well, I'm trying to think what else was around it. Yeah, definitely the subject matter that Beowulf... Because you know that thing, say if you're doing... I'm trying to think of something that's not going to insult any of my contemporaries in the industry. There's not a Batman role-playing game at the moment, is there, specifically? So say you start thinking about Batman, no, you really no, like no, Batman. No, not specifically. No. Oh, we should do that. For Beowulf, shouldn't we? Batman 5e. Anyway, you, you sort of take a property and then you shoehorn... A party into it and sometimes it doesn't really fit the 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 sort of property and it's weird that you get this group of people i'm trying to think of a really good example there was one we were talking about the other day and i can't think what it was call a cthulhu yeah that can be a bit weird sometimes can't it? especially if one person's going off the deep end and the rest of you just sort of mm. pal around with them be all right mate yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean Anything that's got an investigation as part of it, and you go around someone's house and like the little old lady opens the door and there's like six guys there with shotguns. It's yeah. just like, yeah, that's no, not... no thanks. <laughs> She's just been ringing the police straight away. <laughs> there was a bit of a there was a bit of a to and fro on. Do we want to make something that really fits this subject matter that will be almost like this weird version of D anD D, or do we want to do a weird version of Five E? I should say for legal reasons. Yeah, do, do we want to do? something that's a bit strange and actually yeah we did want to do something unusual that that was different um i mean i'm certainly seeing i talk about you guys i'm seeing at the moment there's a real proliferation of quite vanilla fantasy 5e at the moment that i mean yeah it's what mm. floats people boat knock yourselves out but i'm not that excited by it you know i think you can have too much of that um so this is kind of a bit weird and a bit different yes you know? yeah because uh, i noticed you've got rules in there for things like followers mm and uh, voyages and things like that so i mean the follower sort of thing just to kind of pick up on what you were riffing on there in terms of a batman yeah. license is something if you wanted like a fantasy version of buffy or something because yeah. you want you want you want your buffy as a slayer and then there's there's followers but you don't necessarily want 
five other people sat around a table playing them. But as long as you've got some mechanics that kind of emulate having a Scooby Gang with you, then I think that kind of fits. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, it's funny funny that you mentioned Scooby Gang as well, because frequently in development of Beowulf Adventures, we have no shame at all that it's a bit like Scooby-Doo, you know, and it is Monster of the Week (laughs) kind of stuff. With the purpose of getting together with the one friend that you're playing this game with, you can pick it up and put it down quite easily because there's just two of you. And it is Monster of the Week stuff where, you know, there's always going to be a big monster. You've always got to figure out how to defeat it. And it's only the hero can defeat the monster. But yeah, to to actually talk about what you, you were asking there. Yeah, Followers was the real sort of killer app part of Beowulf where we figured out you could have... You remember like henchmen and hirelings and all that stuff way back in the day in mm-hmm. AD&D? They were always a bit rubbish, weren't yeah. they? It was a bit like... Uh, uh, like someone suddenly goes oh my hireling does this you're like what wait what where did this come from you go, oh yeah you know every character of so many levels has got these sort of followers and stuff and that didn't work for us that there's sort of these halfway house semi GM character business you know so we, we worked really hard actually on the in the end they're most followers in Beowulf are most akin to spells actually that they, they have a sort of limited number of uses per day or whatever you know long rest depends on on the exact details in the game but your followers sort of step out the background do their thing in the spotlight and then retreat again into the background i often think about sort of errol flynn uh robin hood movies you know where people in the background are sort of like clashing swords it's all going on don't look at it too hard <laughs> but you know but when they need to do something when the camera flips around and there's like a norman cutting some a rope or something you know then then that 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 happens you know that becomes the foreground if you like and yeah and, and followers in beowulf are very much like that they like in the beowulf poem you know there are characters that sort of step onto the stage to do their thing and then they depart now that's not very good if you're the player of that character you know in a in a a sort of licensed property, like you say, if you're, you know, the Xander character who's just there to sort of do the Xander thing and doesn't actually get much screen time. That's not great. I mean, there's various, I mean, the Buffy role-playing game is very good, actually. Worked on that, done loads of illustrations for that, amazingly. But uh, yeah, yeah, we. Uh, I'm really, really happy with how followers worked, that it's something a little bit different than fudging it. There's, there's a sort of structured approach of, of how much you can rely on your followers and what they can do when... Um, one of the big things they do is tie up opponents in combat. They can most followers can do that for kind of three rounds, while the heroes, you know, break in heads and eventually gets round everyone. The followers just sort of tie them up and stop them from from ganging up on the hero too much, which seems pretty appropriate, I think. Hmm. The other big benefit, of course, of just having like you know one hero in Beowulf is as an artist, you don't have to do any group shots. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, then some mug put in followers, so they're all blooming group shots. I literally curse myself on a regular basis on this kind of thing. Whose idea is it? So on the one ring, right, I was always putting in loads of stairs in the one ring and you'd get halfway through it you'd be like, why have I done this? Can the dwarves of Erebor not be a bit more ramp conscious? You know, there's all these stairs. <laughs> Travel letters. Yeah. It's a nightmare, let me tell you. Good grief. So, yeah. But then, you know. Drawing anything's a nightmare. What's that like for you, John? What, what, what's the tension like for that? Are you? Do you ever like have to think to yourself, I've got to rein this in because I want to put in more elements oh, into yeah. this composition, or, or do you try and make life easy for yourself? Does deadlines play a part in it? You know, what, does the art win, or does sometimes convenience have to generate 
<laughs> a composition. Decision. I think there's a there's a you sort of build a, a I'll call it a skill to be kind to myself. You you gain through experience. You sort of pick your battles, you know, and you you yes. learn. I think if you're going to stay in business as an artist, you learn how to sell it really well. You know that less can be more, if you like. But yeah, oh, frequently. I mean, particularly actually, this is worse for me in art direction. Like you would get a manuscript from some like Garhan Rahan or something. And you go, I mean, my approach is you literally read it on screen or print it out and you just mark it up what, what you think would make good pictures. But then you find you've got like 600 <laughs> illustrations to do. That's not going to work. And you have to start cutting them back, you know, and, and it's heartbreaking. It's really bad. There's some stuff, yeah. Um, Darkening and Mirkwood had so much stuff that I wanted to illustrate that we just, you know, there was no room to, to fit it all in. Um, but yeah, certainly in individual pictures as well, yeah, you, there's you sort of the the potential to just do more and more and more is always um is always there you know my good friend uh ralph horsley he's he's a one for have you seen much of his work he just yes everything is in you know and hats off to ralph he he Mm -hmm. the art always wins with ralph i think you know that's his incredible (laughs) dedication that, that i think ralph has um i've known ralph for like 20 years i think ralph has hyperacuity in his vision, uh, which I don't, luckily. You, you could probably tell from my artwork I'm getting progressively more and more sort of blind as I go. But it's, you know, it's, it's impressionistic, man. You know, it's good. It's, it's artistic. <laughs> it's quick and all, you know. <laughs> Whereas Ralph, I think, has laser-sharp vision and can't bear to not depict that on the, on the canvas. And good for him, you know, it's great. Yes, very good. Do, do you ever, um, I don't know whether you've done it or you considered it, do you ever do like art first? So I'm thinking of something like um, Iron Kingdoms, for example, and um, the, the guys at Privateer Pest did a, a book called The Monster Nomicon, mm. where basically the artists did all the monsters first and then right. they made words about them afterwards. Is, is that something you've thought about doing? Or? So I work with uh, Scott Purdy, works for us at Handiwork Games, and Scott is like fantastic at doing monsters and stuff. So it's been really good. Oh, we've got an upcoming project we haven't really talked about very much at all called Handy Monsters that's going to be like a subscription. It's going to be on Patreon and you'll be able to get really high quality monsters every month. It sounds like an advert now. Stop. But on that, we just let Scott Purdy go, it. go. It's like, you know, do us half a dozen monsters and then we'll... So yes is the answer. Yes, we do do that. Sorry, got there in the end. Yeah, and it works really, really well. And I think if you've got a team where you really trust each other, it's fantastic. Really good. Because there's no point in, if someone is really good at something, like Scott is fantastic at doing monsters, you know, let him do what he's good at, you know. Let him, let him lead it. And then, because, again, something um, Gar Hanrahan always said, you know, changing the words is easy compared to changing the art. I don't, I don't, I think maybe it's easy for him. <laughs> I don't think it's necessarily the case yeah. for everyone. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'll take it. If only everyone was Gar Hanrahan, yeah. So uh, I guess another thing uh, to do with your art we'll probably mention as well is that you've done kind of, um, I don't want to call them dungeon tiles because they're quite a lot of outdoor things as mm. well, but uh, a couple of sets yeah. of kind of mm. like quite small tiles that, that are then modular so you can, you can create like yeah. battle mats, I guess you'd call it, for, for in yeah. D&D parlance. How, how did that go and how did that work for you? Yeah, so we did these map tiles. This was supposed to just be a little, it was a sort of wheeze I had come up with when I discovered drive-through cards can do six-inch square tiles. And I'd been doing a lot of maps for sort of 5e with grids. And you go, well, you know, six by six, actually, yeah, while it's a small tile, 
it does let you put several of them together. So that's, that's going to be really modular. And I thought, oh, people must be making sort of universally connectable tiles with this print-on-demand technology you can get through drive-through cards. Um, and it turned out some people are doing maps on it, but they're not doing that sort of universal connectivity thing. And so it seemed like a good idea. And I thought it might make 500 quid on Kickstarter. I thought I'd just, we'll just sling, sling, sling that on Kickstarter. And then it, it just raced off to £18,000, which I genuinely did not <laughs> think it was going to do that. And it was like, oh, which we sort of changed the lineup in the year to do another to to do another one because you know it went really well and that one did well as well you know um i don't think i can face doing a third one we'll see about that i've got some good ideas for a slightly different take on it so maybe we'll 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 come back to a similar idea with i quite fancy doing a more zoomed out one that's like a sort of kingdom builder kind of set of tiles something like that because i ended up with i was fulfilling the because covid happened which played merry havoc with getting anything printed and getting any help to pack up the parcels. So on MapTiles 2, I think we had 35 different sets to pick and pack, and it was quite hard. <laughs> and it was just me doing it, and I got a bit fed up of it, if I'm honest. I was very grateful to everyone who bought them. It was <laughs> lovely of them, but goodness me, on my own, it was quite hard work. So I'm, I'm having a little rest <laughs> with the map tiles. But yeah, they were just this like weird, unexpected success on Kickstarter. I didn't anticipate that at all. They're good fun. They're, I mean, I use them in my own games. Like They're really good to just, especially if you've not prepped something, you know, and you can just whack some stuff down for a quick, you know, sort of fight along the way. You know, if you're, you're on your way somewhere, and I don't know if you guys have the same thing. Sometimes I've got a couple of players who some nights really want to get into the weeds on detail and positioning. Happily, most of the time we don't, um, but sometimes they need a map, and it, the map tiles are really good for that. Yeah, they're great. Oh, I'll tell you another thing about that. Uh, I found, because again of COVID, there was this sudden worry that I wouldn't be able to import the number of map tiles I wanted to from the US, um, because it wasn't quite clear in the early days of COVID if, if we could move things around. And I had this panic situation where I needed about £6,000 worth of printing done but if it got impounded or you know anything happened to it i i couldn't afford to replace it you know and what do you say to the backers just like mm. sorry it's just you know it, it's completely gone but through all that i actually found uh through uh friends of friends i found a printer in the uk who does an absolutely fantastic job and i love it if we can print a bit more locally that's just absolutely brilliant you know saving on a bit of shipping mm. and you know fuel and stuff it seems a shame to wreck the planet so we can have dungeon floor plans <laughs> so yeah being able to do go local you know is, is a nice thing so that's great yeah and, and i've done many other jobs with this guy in sheffield and he's great who's secret because nobody else is allowed to use him <laughs> <laughs> yeah he'll get busy then when you can't use him <laughs> yeah yeah no he's mine a friend a friend of mine in, who's just started a publishing company the other day was saying why doesn't anyone tell anyone you know who they print with and you're like yeah because it's quite hard work to find the right people and you know you can do the homework as well <laughs> which isn't very nice but <laughs> nah, there's, there's a there's a lot of friendliness and sharing of resources but i understand when you find a really good printer you can be a bit cagey about wanting to keep them quiet for a bit sure so to move into um some of the role-playing space then uh, a game that was uh, well received but uh, many moons ago, coming from Bonnie Scotland, uh, was A-State, which you've uh, revisited 
and uh, reproducing in a, in a slightly different way. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, certainly. I'm really, really delighted to be that we're, you know, publishing this. We this is incredible that. So yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And it came a state came about from Falkirk, which is where I live. Obviously, you can tell from my accent, I'm not born and bred here. <laughs> but um, Malcolm and Paul, who originated a state, are, are Falkirk boys. Paul now works for me. Malcolm, I've known for for many years actually we have, we share a lot of similar interests he's one of those people you meet who you go oh, we like a lot of similar stuff you know it's a bit weird you know I've, I've chatted to both of them obviously over the years malcolm had some really bad experiences around the first edition of a state where there were a couple of the fans who were absolutely rabid and just wouldn't leave him alone um sort of pursued him through his mm. work and so on and eventually he had just had enough so he he left the industry and that's pretty much that that in combination with um, Wizards Attic, who were uh, an American distributor fulfillment agent, they went bust and took a lot of companies yeah. with them, and they, they the the guys lost quite a lot of stock and therefore money through that, and and just basically a number of things meant they had just kind of had enough, and that was that really for A State. Um, just a, a quick sort of summary of what it is. It's it's a very unusual kind of setting it's a mixture of sort of past and future stuff it's a bit uh, who who's a really good touchstone there's a bunch of authors who i'm less familiar with than malcolm is and he'll murder me for getting all the wrong people but a, a, people often think it's a little bit cyberpunky a little bit steampunky both of those terms really annoy the authors but that it's that kind of direction but very <laughs> singular setting very odd bits sort of china mayville um, that kind of stuff, weird, the new weird. Yeah, I was going to say, pity dust each trash and that kind of thing. Yeah, we had kicked around the idea of bringing A-State back, but we never never thought it would happen. And then at Tabletop Scotland, uh, Mr. Gregor Hutton was there. I don't know if you know Gregor. You know, he's, a, he's a stalwart yeah. of the indie game scene, an absolutely lovely chap. And he had also had the idea that we should do do this thing. And a state should be converted to Blades in the Dark, the rules, you know, the Forged in the Dark license, you know, that powers the Blades in the Dark game. And he had written a load of notes, and it was really a, a sort of coincidental thing that we had, myself and Paul had been talking about it. And then basically it came down to could we convince Malcolm to come out of retirement, you know, and, 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 and write a little bit on it, or at least oversee it. And, uh, yeah, he, he is on board. I think he's enjoying it. I hope he's enjoying it. It's hard to tell with Malcolm. Hiya, Malcolm, if you're listening. Um, yeah, and it, I mean, it's really coming together. Paul, we've got, Paul is, is doing the artwork again, but we've also got um, myself and Scott Perdia handling some of the figure work and stuff because Paul was never quite happy. I thought it was quite good, all them, all them 3D models of people and stuff. It did look a bit weird in places, but I thought that was quite good, you know. But but Paul did, was not keen to visit hmm. figures again, so he's doing he's doing the epic landscapes, and we're we're handling the figures, which you can see we've got a free uh, primer called Nicely Done, and that's got tons of art in it. Um, it's free on drive through. It's a how long is it? Thirty two pages, or something like that. Um, and you get that in print recently. We're we're really digging on the drive through print on demand for these smaller books. It's really nice um, to be able to offer it in print as well yeah. to the. The old fans in particular, you know, it's nice. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm glad to, to hear that Malcolm's back on it again. I did speak to uh, Malcolm probably, oh God, it might even be a decade ago now, something, but um, because Hot War is one of my favourite games, which is right. that and Cold City are two of the products they brought out. Yeah. 
But yeah, I asked him about because there was going to be a third instalment of that kind of line. Yeah. But it was it was somewhat niche. It was sort of set in Constantinople in a period of history that no one knows about apart from. Yeah, was it was it Akrana? <laughs> a few, was it? A few, yeah, we yeah we spent many a night talking about that one. Yeah. Well, you never know. You never know your luck. We'll see. Now he's back in the game. <laughs> we might get another one out of him. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be nice to put out just Hot War and Cold City again, wouldn't it? It'd be nice to get them out. Yeah, yeah, because I've got the old um, the old banana edition, which I think it was the first print run that had the slightly wrong laminate on it, so the the covers just curl back like bananas as he calls them. But um, yeah, it's because at the time when I spoke to him last, uh, I asked him about you know the role playing uh, hobby and all the rest of it, and he was. Um, disinclined to do any more writing. I, sh- I should probably put it in the most politic way, but yeah. um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's good to hear that you've managed to turn him around and get him interested again and, and do a bit of work on it, because he does write good stuff. Yeah, I don't quite know how it quite worked out. No one could quite believe it, you know, that we'd managed it. But I think, I mean, to be sick, it's, it's, it's all a good laugh yeah. and all that, but I think Malcolm trusts that we'll look after him. Do you know what I mean? You know, we won't. I've, uh, I've put myself between him, and, and, and already we've got a few people who are, See, the horrible thing is, if I say there's a few fans who are too keen, the nice people will go, oh, no, it's me. And it isn't ever them. <laughs> it's the people who don't worry that it's them are the problem. And for some reason, it's one of those settings where people have really strong opinions. It's this weird mix of it is very much the vision of Paul and Malcolm. But then people and people really buy into that. But then they want to tell them what to do, which I find really bizarre. Yeah. I just can't. I would never... I would never sort of phone an author to tell them they'd written their book wrong. You either you like it or you don't, you know, you, and it's their thing. It's not your thing. But we seem to, you know, we, we gamers seem to struggle a bit with that sometimes, don't we? I suppose if you play in a, in a setting for a long time, it becomes yours. Well, Kickstarter must play a part in that as well. I mean, the entitled fan is, is something that, that everybody is aware of. But, but when, you're, when you're backing Kickstarter... Uh, which everybody has to do now. You, it's, you can't not do Kickstarter, can you? But but yeah, I'm sure there are people who think, I've paid my money in advance, and now surely I'm entitled to <laughs> write a chapter or, or redo an image <laughs> or at least let the authors know what my intents are because I'm like a shareholder now yeah, in this IP. It's really it's quite difficult because it's funny you mention that I had a, I've had more than one interaction along those lines this very day most of which were very <laughs> nice actually I have to say I've got to stress and again it's like the the people who are going to worry I'm talking about them I'm not the people I'm talking about but it is that sort of uh, I want you to make your book differently and it's like no I'm not, I'm not going to do that because you've sort of <laughs> in effect you've hired me to manage that and if I start turning into a democracy then it won't be what you think you're getting you'll get this weird other thing that will be you know trying to please everyone and, and failing on all counts you know i, I think anyway mm. but it's yeah it is a weird one and and you're right i mean sort of morally speaking people have much more of a, a claim to make their opinions known on kickstarter because they have really helped you you know this is something i mm. to, to, to sort of jump the fence and talk about bad creators if you like kickstarter terrifies me you know i literally lie awake at night worrying about delivering and yet you get people who seem to do kickstarter after kickstarter after kickstarter and don't deliver anything and Mm -hmm. you can't blame people for getting really mad at that because it's not okay you know we need to be really grateful to anyone putting their hand in their pocket especially now of all times you know um, anyone that's prepared to sort of gamble on you like that, you, you have to show some respect, don't you? But I'm not changing nothing. 
<laughs> I'll be really polite when I tell you I'm not doing it than what you want. <laughs> but I'll be nice about it. <laughs> and that's the difference, you see. <laughs> it's the personable no. That's right. It's the veneer of civility that goes off the top. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very important. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it is actually, isn't it? You know, manners. <laughs> bit of manners on both sides goes a long way i think this is another amazing thing that i wish people that have very strong opinions and want you to to bend what you're doing if they're really nice about it you know we've done a lot of things like that we go oh, actually yeah that is a good idea but if if people leave space you know and are nice about it leave space for people to come around to their sort of opinion it can happen but if you just sort of bark orders at people it just doesn't work does it did anyone try that with uh, the forest dragon? If, is it okay to talk about your son's <laughs> yeah. very, very popular Kickstarter? Did they ever try it on with a nine-year-old and go, listen, son, you're doing it all wrong? Yeah, they did, and it was really weird. Because, like, yeah, there were there were people sent really strong critiques of, of the car, the game design, and it, it was made by a nine-year-old boy, and, and it was really hard to explain to these grown adults that, like, I don't think you understand what this is. You know, like, yeah, very strange. <laughs> and, and, and often there was a weird... We had one particular person who followed us quite closely who would comment a lot about how they played it differently and felt they'd improved it. And it was like, yeah, okay, all right. You know, if, if you like it like that, that's fine. But we sort of don't. And I don't know, make, make your own game. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's not a mature attitude, is it? But yeah, yes, we absolutely did it's have right, people... nine, you can say that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was him who said that. He's very rude. Very rude child. Very aggressive. Yeah. It's my game over. Yeah. He is. That's funny because he's like such the opposite of that. What a nice kid. We're very lucky. Um, but they, they seem to have retired frustratingly for me. They ain't that bothered no more. We've got... There's oh. another two games in the can, which we haven't had time to do. So there is... Because we did Bang and Twang, which didn't go down so well. It wasn't didn't catch the hold like the Forest Dragon mm. did. Um, I think it's a good little game, actually, Bang and Twang, but nobody else seems to agree. Um, nah, it's rubbish. It sold quite well. Um, but the yeah, we've got uh, the Forest Dragon Farmer, which is the sort of you've settled down from your life of being an adventurer and you're trying to grow all these weird vegetables on different plots of land. That's quite quite a good one. It's got some really mad things in it, as you would expect if you've looked at the other games. And then... The the Pie Man's Apprentice is is the fourth instalment, but I don't think there'll be any. If they ever come out, I don't think there'll be any more. Both are pretty much. Forest Dragon Farm is ready to print. It's completely done, and we've been playing it for two years. So yeah, but it's just a sp- space in the schedule to do it. Um, but we should do really, shouldn't we? Before before they like leave home and stuff. Maybe we could do it when they leave home, and you know, could set them up can it, in <laughs> in their new life, not bothering me. With their weird vegetable games. <laughs> <laughs> the one, the, the real trick we missed, which which uh, was was a really good friend of mine suggested after we'd put out Bang and Twang, was that it should have been Burp and Fart, and and we still might do Burp and Fart <laughs> yes, at some point because they came up with some incredible characters for Burp and Fart. So another thing I was going to try and, well, not try and ask you about, I'm actually going to ask you about, um, is Hellenistica, which is something oh, yeah. that you'd got with uh, Ken Height uh, uh, work with as well, uh, which is kind of a, a Grecian-style mm. D&D game, which I'm, I'm quite keen. I've just been playing Agon, which is another yeah, yeah, yeah. game which is 
you know, from the John Harper staple, mm. so you, you're aware of Blaze of the Dark Suit, you'll know all that. So anything uh, mythic Greek related is of keen interest to me. So what can you tell us about Hellenistica? So it's, Ken's quite, um, there's quite a lot of gonzo in it, actually. I don't know if Ken minds me saying that. It, it was originally made for 13th Age. Uh, we want to bring it to 5e. Um, it's a kind of anime-tinged, in, in, in tone more than actual art style, um, really over-the-top, sort of supercharged Greek setting, uh, set in the, the, the name uh, gives you the clue, set in the Hellenistic era, rather than, it's not kind of, you know, Ho- Homer and all that business, it's a bit later on. And it's, you know, it's everything you'd expect from Ken, you know, it's really well-researched, but also quite bonkers. Um, really looking forward to seeing more of it come together. The thing with Ken is Ken writes what Ken needs to write at the pace Ken needs to write it. So, you know, people have asked a lot about, you know, where is it, where is it? And it's going to be one of those, it will be ready when it's ready. Um, We've done, you know, a bunch of artwork is ready and I think Ken's working away on it. So, you know, good. I very much look forward to to reading it um, as I'm sure you guys do. It's like proper epic stuff. There's like, you know, bronze colossi that you can drive around like sort of mech suits and stuff. It's full of really good stuff. Um, and just, you know, Ken's writing. Spot on, isn't it? Ken posts on Twitter every week after his mm. game. And he yeah. sums up that week's games. And in 240 characters, he basically drops a campaign source book in every single one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have to go and... They should come with footnotes, like everything yeah. Ken does. It just sends you off to research. It's like, what is he on about? Really? <laughs> All that happened in three hours? Yeah. And he's been running... He's, I've been following that account for... Well, it must be years. His home yeah. play campaign has obviously got massive legs. It's still yeah. just trundling along. And and it makes my little Monday night. Oh, this is what I played in D and D tonight. We had some goblins in a pond. Yeah, it's a kobold. It makes it look so so weak. (laughs) And it's always good, isn't it? I I know exactly what you mean. Where you just go, yeah, what is that? And then you find it's something really amazing. Yeah, Mm. very very high quality um, Twitter feed, isn't it? You know, it's one of the ones that's Mm. worth being on Twitter for. It's not just someone's opinions. You know, yeah, Ken really knows his stuff. Yeah, Mm. I'm really looking forward to that. We've got a few different sort of. Uh, options lined up as well which I don't want to say too much about in case none of it happens that would be setting ourselves up but there's a few great ideas floating around um, so yeah yeah very much looking forward to that can't can't give you a sort of timeline on that one it will be when it's ready to go it'll be ready to go um, one of those ones um, you know in in stark contrast the A state is in the final stages of writing you know we'll go to Kickstarter with A state um, but it will be Fingers crossed that we're ready to go. There's about sixty or seventy new pieces of Paul Bourne art, which is amazing. He's just chugging away yeah. at those, and and all, all the different areas are getting a write up, getting a sort of you know, um, getting the dust brushed off them and being brought right up to date. Um, so yeah, they're they're two quite sort of contrasting projects in that way, which is kind of interesting. But it was a nice Helen Sticker was a really nice one actually because when Ken first heard that I had left Cubicle 7, he was straight on the phone going, you want to make a game? And I'm like, hell yeah, I want to make a game, which was great. That was really good. You know, it was a lovely thing for him to do in a way, you know, for which I will always be grateful, you know. Um, similarly with, uh, what's that guy called? Rich Thomas, who runs Onyx, pa- Onyx Path. He was on the phone, you know, going, do you want to make us a book? And I'm like, yeah, go on then. <laughs> so yeah, we did, a, we did the creature collection for Onyx Path, which was lovely. So it was very interesting to find out, you know, that, that there was a lot of love out there, which was great, really good. So yeah, yeah, Helen Stickers will be close to my heart forever, you know, because of that reason. 
Yeah. Well, well, we'll make sure we send all those rabid fans, the, not yeah. the nice ones, the other ones. We'll, we'll send them over to Ken. Yeah, he, send honestly... them to Ken. Ken can deal with them. Yeah, the thing is, he can as well. That's the thing. He can as well. He's well, not bothered, he? is he? <laughs> you know, <laughs> he just sort them out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm just a sensitive flower. Me, I can't deal with it. But you know. <laughs> So, so in general, how do you feel about handiwork games? Then a couple of years on, because as you say, you were like at one point Cubicle Seven, and then had a oh. steady stream of work. So to set up your own game company and do quite a wide variety of stuff, we're covered there that, that you're producing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how does that? Is it is it good that you've got that variety? Do you feel you've just been kind of doing whatever springs to mind, and, and happily it's worked out? Or, yeah. Uh, how do you feel about the, the company in general? I'm loving it actually. I should have done it years before, if I'm honest. It was it was long overdue. And it is it is stressful, but it's a completely different kind of stress because it's we we sort of decide what we want to do, um, and and then just do it, and and you sort of make your own mistakes if you like. You know, there was a lot of there was a lot of running around after other people at Cubicle Seven, um, and I was never going to reap the benefits of that really. So it's nice to to you know. I'm still digging a ditch, but it's my ditch. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah, there's the there's the stress of how many furlongs of di- I'm really lost in a ditch digging metaphor now how many furlongs of ditch <laughs> keep digging, I can dig keep in digging, a day <laughs> before the sun goes down you know it's my ditch which is great and yeah, like I say should have should have jumped a lot a lot sooner than I did you could plough your own furrow in your own ditch can't you yeah yeah and it's sort of yeah it's hard to explain because I mean I learned so much working at Cubicle 7 you know and I had some really good years there it was a shame it all went really bad at the end, but sometimes that's how things have to sort of stop, you know. Otherwise, you could, I could have kept along going along in a sort of mediocre kind of life, if you like, I suppose, for a very long time. Whereas now it's oh, it's brilliant. We we are having the best time, you know. It's really good. Um, yeah, yeah. Lie awake at night, going, oh my god, payroll, VAT, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but that's all right. That's okay. It's only paperwork. Can't hurt you. Allegedly, yeah, yeah, no, really enjoying it, really enjoying it. It's really good, and it's—I mean—it's more or less the same job that I was doing before. Still trying to get old uh, Andy Kenrick to do me a bit of editing. I I know your friends with him, Gaz. I am, yeah, yeah. He's, um, he's—I think three years into his PhD now, I think as well. So he's using that as an excuse a lot. He's, yeah, he's resolute in his in his proper job. I'll ruin that for him. Get him back. <laughs> sabotage his life so he has to edit my monster men books <laughs> but yeah oh he loves a bit of that i'm sure yeah I'm sure i reckon we'll you know we'll win him over have you seen his have you read his hinterlands thing it's really good he's editing this sort of it's not a magazine it's like a periodical of new new non-fiction writing really good i suppose like to talk like circle around to some other things we've said then it's kind of the modern world that allows uh, people like yourself to have your own company in a way if we think about you know when um sort of paul and um, malcolm had done a state like i said that was kind of the old distribution model where they had to print out a lot of books pay for them in advance have them sat in warehouses somewhere get them distributed uh, the modern world and like modern printing and print on demand and just modern communications allows you to work with people 
in all kinds of places. Uh, you can all collaborate together. You just getting books to people is a lot easier. So uh, I get, although you're saying you should have done done this ages ago, as it were, it's probably recent years that have enabled it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, when when you look at things like the map tiles that we do, that that came about purely as a result of the technology existing to do it. I mean, since since then, I found other other routes to 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 source similar stuff. You know, but but the start of it of that was very much the the, the technology existed. I'm I'm often struck by so I started an illustrator about twenty years ago now. Good grief! And that was with the rise of the internet. When when I first started, I used to have to sell oh, old man story. I had to save up the color photocopies of my paintings that were real paintings, and I would pick the best ones I'd done that month, having saved my wages working in a shop. And, and would get, get a load of colour photocopies done and post them off to America, you know, to never hear, you know, to publishers in the States, to never hear back. Whereas now, you just, you know, you just send an email to all of them. <laughs> and, and, I mean, that's incredible. That, that made me, you know, the internet and the ability to work remotely and send artwork. You know, when I, my first jobs, they would send a bike courier around for artwork and things, and then it would be scanned and eventually returned to you. Whereas now it just all, you know, it goes straight down the wire. There's no need for any of that. And, and hallelujah, you know, it's incredible. Great stuff. You know, we can put books together from, from separate locations, you know, on different continents and so on. It's, it's incredible, really. I am absolutely in, as much as I will, you know, if you get me off air, I'll have a right moan about Kickstarter because it's really hard work. Um, but... Uh, um, great pains to remember without it you know and you literally turn up with an idea and as long as you can convince people that you have some degree of ability to get it done you know you can do anything now i mean that's amazing yeah i totally agree yeah we live in a a a time of incredible marvels really in publishing this will keep you going for like 20 minutes or 10 seconds i'm not sure which way it'll go i was going to ask why is art so important in tabletop role-playing games because you you can't you can't make a role-playing product without it having great art great art will sell a role-playing product it will it will absolutely lift it and and i kind of don't know why that would be the case i appreciate that when games started coming out like original Dungeons and dragons had pictures in it, it was illustrated you could totally conceive of a world where that would not have been the case where it might have just been done as pure text there are very, very, very few games or products that are purely text. Art is so fundamental, and yet, when you want to talk to anybody about gaming, whatever, it's kind of like like directors in cinema are the stars. It's like writers in RPGs are the guys and gals who get the kind of spotlight on them. But if you haven't got the art and the art direction, it, it seems to me to be fundamental, even though it's the bit you never see, because... If you're playing the game, it's all verbal, generally speaking. You're around the table. I've got loads of books with lovely pictures that my players have never seen. <laughs> so so how's that even work? I mean, I bet you're glad it does, but how's that even work? Put into one side my natural inclination to be, you know, very glad of that. <laughs> I think there's a couple of there's a couple of reasons. I can give you a really sort of fatuous answer, first of all. If you think about novels, you know, we like oh, yes, a please, fatuous yeah. answer. If you think about <laughs> novels, the expensive ones and the sort of ones that are considered deluxe have plates in them. They have, you know, art with illustrations mm. by, you know, the author or what have you. You know, that, that is seen as a, a mark of quality. And I think that segues into a slightly more serious answer. That 
for in a, a crowded marketplace like role-playing games, less so in the history, I'll try and delve into that in a moment, um, it, it's a promise of quality. And I think that is the, the single most important function of artwork for a product rather than a game, but a product on sale in the market, which is the real thing that's happening. That is, is what we're doing. You know, we are making products for sale. Mm. And it it's instantly communicates the level of quality. You know when you see a game, it might be a charming indie, you know, where the authors can draw a little bit and it looks like awesome because of that. And there's a lot of people that go for that kind of thing. I, yeah. I love that stuff. Or it might be a really high-end, you know, your sort of FFGs, your Paizo, your, your, your what's in. That tells you really quickly what sort of thing it is. Um, and that is just money in the bank in the publishing game, basically. You know, everyone judges mm. a book by its cover. I always have a little smirk to myself. You see these threads on RPG Net where people declare, I don't judge anything by the art. And you say, it's just rubbish. You live in, you are inculcated into Western society. You judge things on their packaging, you know. I found myself once in the supermarket buying this particular pack of, I think it was margarine in them days. I'm only a butterman now, but it was margarine. And I suddenly stopped myself, I'm like, why are you buying this? You know, what, what? And it had a really nice packaging, you know. <laughs> You're like, what are you? And you go, oh, I've been totally <laughs> tricked by this, you know, into it's really loaded with sort of symbolism, isn't it? We're a very visual kind of culture. And, and I think all of that feeds into it. it. I mean, there's a lot of, you'll, you'll get a lot of people who'll tell you about, it's about a sort of common, common imagination. And if you can show people a picture, then, you know, yeah, they'll have a common idea of what things look like. I, I don't think all that much of that goes on at the gaming table. Not really. I think everyone imagines their own thing, you know, with hilarious results sometimes. Um, but a lot of the time, you don't you don't need to show a picture. It can, can be really good when you do, he says, hurriedly, to secure his own position. <laughs> but I do think there's another really important thing is um, mnemonics in a book, that you navigate a book by the pictures. You know you know the rules about combat, and next to that, that one picture yeah. you can remember. And that is another really, really important thing, that the way we use role-playing game books is as reference works and sort of like manuals. And being able to, I think there's a lot of subconscious stuff we use when we navigate them by, by artwork. And that's really, really important. And I think anyone who's interested in art direction needs to get their head around that quite quickly to successfully art direct. There's a lot of hidden stuff mm. goes on that, that isn't immediately obvious. Because if you imagine a book without any artwork at all, um, it would be tremendously difficult to navigate in the way we do now. You'd get used to it. You'd just use the index or what have you. Um, or, or chapter headings at the top of the page so you would you would replace it but just the way it is now it tends to be by by imagery i think people flip through books um but i also agree it's just a bit weird you know it's just this thing that's sort of grown it's very true I, I, there's a kickstarter recently that um one of my gaming groups I, I just like because you've got twitter feeds and discord and whatever else but in that little group there that suddenly came up went have you seen such and such a thing uh, and everybody went yeah i know have you looked at the art and that, that was like just the thing, like nobody mentioned yeah. the background, the setting, the rule, like just straight away, as soon as somebody mentioned it, everybody in the group went, oh, but the art is terrible. Aww. And that was just the thing. Like the yeah. game might be brilliant. It might be, you know, a work of art from a word point of view, but um, we've, we've sort of had to nominate someone to go and find out for all of us. <laughs> so we're going to like, someone back it first and see whether it's any good, and then we might pack yeah. it as well. But, but if it looked pretty, we'd have all bought it uh, straight away, you know, without thinking. It's funny, it's, isn't it, because you would... You would sort of suffer it to be on your shelf if it looked nice, you know. But if it looked yeah, sort of embarrassing, yeah, right. you wouldn't really, you know, and people would look at your book collection and go, what's that? 
you know, you, why have you got that? You know, which <laughs> is totally unfair. I agree, it's completely unfair. I think it's a shame where I think sometimes people judge games quite unfairly on artwork. I think there's there's a broad church of styles that could be being used in games that isn't. You know, I think I think games are a long way. Not or not all games, role playing games, and quite a long way. It's getting better, but quite a long way behind maybe board games and comics and so on in having a little bit more diversity of style. I think too there's too much where diversity is a fig. I'm not talking about diversity in the good sense of you know people with different, from different backgrounds mm. and heritages and so on. I mean diversity of types of artwork. I think that tends to be used as a fig leaf for I haven't got any money, so it looks like this, and and I meant it to look like that. And you go no, you didn't. <laughs> Just what you could get. And we've all been there. Do you know what I mean? There's no shame in it. But but yeah, I, I think the sort of diversity of styles tends to be more involved with budget these days than anything else. Probably another thing I wanted to mention on uh, on art actually is from, for example, the nicely done um, thing you brought out for Airstate, uh, is that you've got uh, well, apart from the fact that it's all like full color anyway and just looks gorgeous, but from a usability point of view, as something to throw in front of people, uh, it's kind of like the the full page spreads with the characters on. So you've got you know, apart from sort of, what do you look like? Oh, I'm about six foot tall and I've got brown hair and you know, like nobody conjures up that picture in the head. It just means nothing. But just having a nice uh, full character right, you can pull out and go, this is you. Or even from a GM's point of view, throwing those sheets in the middle of the table and going, yeah. who do you want to be? Without knowing anything about the game, people can just go, I want to be yeah. that one. <laughs> like, yeah. She looks cool. That's my character. I'm having that. Yeah, you, know, yeah, that you, can, you can communicate a lot of stuff really quickly with, with artwork. That is, you know, the, that that's the sort of positive side, I think, of, of um, talking about that sort of shared imaginary space and so on. It, there, there are definite instances where that just is quicker, isn't it? No, I mean, in play as well, nobody wants to... We've all been the GM that, that wants to be a novelist. And, and reads copious stuff to people. And you're like, yeah, can I? Where, where? Can you just tell me where the exits are out of this room, please? You know, north, <laughs> south. <laughs> you know, can we get on with it? I'm not bothered about the type of wood the rafters are made out of at this point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do, oh, do I want to tell this story? Yeah, I, I watched a, a video on Facebook the other day by a guy giving out GM advice, and he was trying to give out advice for what makes a game sort of compelling. And he obviously really rates his own writing. And he read this enormous piece of fiction that described arriving at the dungeon door and was like, kind of, see, isn't that better? And I, I wouldn't be so mean as to comment, but it was a bit like, no, it's not. Honestly, it's not. not, not and, it, and it wasn't a bad piece of fiction. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't awful by any manner of means. But yeah. I don't want to sit there on a Wednesday night and listen to someone, you know. Uh, this is as as well you all know you don't want to sit on a Thursday night and just listen to one person talking <laughs> sorry to everyone listening you're never getting get this old. time back you've wasted your life <laughs> go and do some sit ups quick before it's too late <laughs> I knew I knew we shouldn't have got an artist on a podcast yeah, no. it would well, never it's work radio <laughs> ventriloquism mate <laughs> Next week, dancing about architecture. <laughs> you know, I say the word, the, the phrase radio ventriloquism with alarming regularity. I'm always saying that. Uh, I think I engineer situations in which I can say it. <laughs> and I don't know why. It's a convoluted method you've used, but I appreciate the efforts. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I say about my car sometimes. Yeah. But, uh, right. 
So um, I, I note that the time is against us. You, do, you have mentioned that. Is, is there anything else that you're uh, working on at the minute, or perhaps anything else that you've sort of like picked up yourself, or looked at, or played that you might want to let our listeners know about before we let you go? Oh, crumbs! That's, uh, I tell you what's been really exciting in a selfish way. We we're, we're doing a miniature set. And I'm really excited to be making these miniatures and painting them. And uh, yeah, my office, so we've just moved office and my office is now absolutely full of boxes of miniatures, which has been very exciting. So the Beowulf, um, yeah, actually it's worth mentioning the Beowulf late pledges are going to close in a couple of weeks. And then all the prices are going to go up because we unlocked a bunch of stuff in the campaign. So if you want it at a really good price, you want to get in now. Um, in terms of games, other people, I bought Wingspan the other day, a uh, board oh, game. Nice. Yeah, it's sort of slightly terrifying though. It, it's a bit, I'm a bit overwhelmed, but it looks really beautiful. I haven't had a chance to play it yet though. Um, but that was the last thing. It's I very watched. gentle. Is it's, it? the, it's the least overwhelming game you'll ever play. Once you I, play it, it's, it's very nice. Really, yeah, it's like it's just you, you kind of sit there watching birds with all the other people around the table, have a cup of tea, have a slice of oh, cake while you're doing it. That sounds don't even bother fishing if you don't want to. Have a snooze in the middle. That, it's fine. That sounds exactly <laughs> up my street for games, actually. I, really, I, had, I had a really shocking realisation that we playtest all our games in the pub. And I was like, did we just make games for like <laughs> drunk people that can't concentrate? But then, and do I mind? I quite like it. You know, I quite like a game. You can have a chat while you're playing. Not supposed to be talking. We can't really do that with role playing games. We're supposed to be talking about role playing games, but you know, it's nice to play a casual game. I think. So no, I have not got any role playing game recommendations because I haven't bought anything new in ages, which is really shocking. I'm just looking around, seeing what I've got. I've very, very upsettingly, all I have is a five e DMG and player's handbook on my desk. They're six years old, man. What have you been doing? You you can get this stuff on. Um... You can get this stuff on expenses now and write it off as R and D. That's that's what my mate does. He he, he chalks it all up to um to the tax it man. Is, well, it is all. I mean, it's all necessary. But the trouble is, once you own the company, it's like you've got to do all the work to get the money to buy it. <laughs> yeah, you've got to give your receipt back know, to someone yeah. as well. Oof, yeah. Dear, oh dear. But yeah, no, it's been great. Thank you very much for having me, having me on. It's been a blast. I hope you've not been too bored while I've monologued in an attempt to oh, be good cool. value. <laughs> Listen, we got we got two hours out of a D four one. <laughs> nice. <laughs> no, it's been uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, John. Cheers for coming on and sharing your insights. Uh, and I'm sure at some point in the future, when you've uh, knocked a few more products out for us, we'll we'll have you back on again. Yeah, we get a stay out. It's going to be great. Lovely. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed myself. Cheers, Johnny. All right. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers, then. <laughs>